Welcome to the Dr. Gabrielle Lyon Show, where I believe a healthy world is based on transparent conversations. This is Dr. Gabrielle Lyon, and I'm really excited to bring you this powerful episode. Here's how I know Clint Davis. I recently gave a TEDx talk, and there were a handful of other speakers. I listened to all of them, and Clint blew my mind, so much so that I wanted him on the show. In this episode of the Dr. Gabrielle Lyon Show, this is all about children. Don't turn it off. If you are a parent, or if you know a child, or if you are an aunt or an uncle, or you interface with any children, this episode is for you, and it is an episode for you to share. We talk about protecting our children, protecting our children in life and from sexual predators, and how to create boundaries within themselves. So listen up. What is appropriate language, both sexual and non-sexual for children? What are children really seeing when they're on that iPad or on YouTube? What are they really watching Coco Melon? And what are the effects of screen time to how they process emotions? And also, what are they being shown? There's this joke if you are a parent that kids don't come with a guidebook and parenting doesn't come with a guidebook. This conversation is the closest to a guidebook that I have ever heard and I was profoundly affected by the boundaries put into place for both parents and children. Please take a moment to listen to this episode. Clint Davis is amazing. He's an army veteran. He has a bachelor's degree in psychology, a master's in marriage and family therapy. He's also an ordained minister. He trained in trauma and trained in sexual addiction recovery. Clint is and has worked for over a decade to help those out of human trafficking and poverty. Clint owns Clint Davis Counseling and Integrative Wellness. He has a team of mental health counselors, their medical professionals who help people recover from trauma to the mind, body, and spirit, all the things that we find valuable. And he hosts his own podcast called Asking Why. This is a powerful and important conversation. Please take a moment to like, subscribe, and share it. It had a profound impact on me, and I hope it has the same impact on you. And guess what we're talking about today? Well, we are talking about gut health, and One Farm makes an incredible gut health formula. And actually, what it is, is it's a bone broth that is enriched with botanicals and adaptogens to help support a healthy microbiome, which is everything these days. And guess what? There's another way to drink bone broth. Yes, believe it or not, I'm going to share with you how I do it. I heat up the water, I mix up some bone broth, and then I put it in the fridge and I go about my day. And in an hour to two hours later, I will have my gut health superfood. And it's almost like instead of a sparkly drink, it really helps with my appetite and I use it in between meals. So I suggest you give that a try, but that's not all. It has garlic and onions from Keen Garlic. They are grown organic and they are considered heirloom garlic. Tastes amazing. This product also has chamomile and marshmallow in it. Here's how you're going to get it. This month, One Farm is offering my listeners a free bottle. Yes, a free container of gut health superfood. All you have to do is pay $5 for shipping 
Go to onefarm.com, that's onefarm, O-N-E, farm.com. Put in the code LIONGH, like Lion Gut Health, for a free, that's right, a free container, and it will just cost you $5 for shipping. I am so excited to share with you one of the sponsors of this show, a company called Timeline Nutrition that makes MitoPure. MitoPure is a urolithin A product. It is unbelievable. I've actually been using MitoPure for quite some time. It helps me with energy and physical endurance, and I swear I feel stronger. MitoPure has a ton of science behind it. There's multiple randomized controlled trials. It affects those positively in aging and those even younger. Helps with mitochondria production. Again, mitochondria are the powerhouses in our cell. There are a lot of mitochondria in skeletal muscle. It helps make our mitochondria produce energy more efficiently, and it helps with our body's own cellular renewal process. In fact, I've done a whole episode on this compound, urolithin A. It is phenomenal, and there are multiple ways to take it. Fits into an intelligent, muscle-centric lifestyle. Here is how you are going to take it. You can either use MitoPure Berry or ginger powder with water, or you can mix it in your shake. They also have soft gels. I use one soft gel twice a day. And Timeline is offering my community 10% off your first order of MitoPure. Go to timelinenutrition.com slash Dr. Lion and use the code Dr. Lion to get 10% off your order. Again, timelinenutrition.com slash Dr. Lion. Clint Davis, thank you so much for coming on the show. This episode is actually going to be a little bit different than the usual science-based strategies, but nonetheless, probably even more important than anything that I've spoken about. Not all our children will be resilient and not all our children will be okay. Clint Davis, you have worked in the area of human trafficking, trauma, sex addiction. Please, how are we going to protect our children? And before that, I think that you offer hope. So tell me a little bit about yourself. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah. So we met, you know, during the TED Talk uh, and... um I've been a counselor for about 15 years. So I'm a licensed professional counselor, a master's in marriage and family therapy. And a little bit of my story is just that I had my own trauma when I was a kid. My parents divorced when I was eight. Um, some sexual trauma happened somewhere between eight and 11, exposed to pornography, um, got into high school, felt a lot of shame about that, never told anybody about it, kind of went through the normal, typical played sports, did my thing, did uh, uh Taekwondo and uh, martial arts and graduated in uh, 2001. And so second week of basic training, I joined the army and 9-11 happened. So I got deployed to Afghanistan um, after that and came back from Afghanistan, had PTSD really bad, got into drugs, alcohol, drinking, all those kind of things. Um, and so I started going to therapy. I had a meltdown. My mom came home. I remember laying on the, the floor, gripping the carpet, and I can still remember kind of how the carpet felt in my mom's living room. Uh, she's changed it out since then. But she came home and got into therapy. And and for me, I'm a Christian, and so I got into a Christian counseling kind of situation. And he was also a licensed professional, and it was just really helpful. And I was like, oh, my gosh, like 
I thought it was the army PTSD, but it's all this other stuff too. And so I started doing that work and got some help. Um, got deployed then to uh, the Super Superdome for Hurricane Katrina. So I was in the National Guard at the time. So I went down there and that was really worse than Afghanistan. Saw things that, you know, three hours from my house that I'd never thought that I'd see. And so the PTSD kind of kicked back in and I got back into some things that I shouldn't be doing to cope and got back into therapy. That was helpful. And so then after I got out of that, I was like in grad school or in college. And I'm like, what am I going to do? And uh, I knew therapy was super helpful for me. And so I decided that I wanted to go back, but I didn't want to just see Christians. You know, I didn't want to just do a faith base. So I wanted to have the secular training with the science and the research. And so I ended up moving to California, get my master's in marriage and family therapy at Fuller Theological Seminary. They have a um, basically a a master's degree that's solely masters and then you also can get some like theology with that if if you want it and so did that and i came back to shreveport started my practice um, worked in human trafficking for about 10 years um, with purchase not for sale which is a nonprofit there what did, what did you do in, in human trafficking so we worked with uh, i wrote the curriculum so we had a uh, two three homes where women would come there it's still open they still do it and uh, we partnered with the fbi and local law enforcement to um women would come out of trafficking from the fbi or they'd get called on a sting we would bring them into our program and they would live for two years in houses that were purchased for them. Um, and they would come up to our classes and they, and our, my practice was at the same place that purchase was at the time. And they would do um, Bible studies. They would do trauma recovery. They would do EMDR. They would do uh, counseling and group classes. Um, That's probably tough. Uh, it was rough. Yeah. And I, at the time I was, I was seeing all of them uh, one-on-one and, you know, there were women that would say, you know, this is the first time I've ever been in the room with a man and shut the door and it not be about sex. And so it was amazing to see like one, just the humility that I had to learn and oh gain working with these women and uh, and just the trust they built in me and the stories. And but you also hear some really horrible things that humans do to one another. And some of those things still stick with me. And so I've been going to therapy myself for 20 years to deal with all that. So I tell all my clients, I'm like, hey, I do the same thing. I sit on the couch and, you know, if if you're, uh, in my opinion, if you're worth your salt, then you you do the same thing you're asking people to do. Yeah. I, I watched your TEDx. I was actually there and it profoundly impacted me. And I want to tell you why. Yeah. I obviously, I have two very little children and I know the world that we're in and the world that we're in doesn't seem to be getting kinder. It seems to be getting worse. Mm. And the children that we have the honor and privilege to protect need our protection. Absolutely. And you said a couple of things. You talked a lot about sexual neglect and we're going to speak in great detail about all the things. One of the things that you had said that I was so surprised by you kind of tell the story about your mom mm -hmm. so the children you have two boys the the grandmother who um got kicked out of the bathroom because your son said you know well grandma you know you can't see my penis uh -huh. and i i just thought gosh i i don't know if i have those boundaries in place for my children mm. and how am I going to protect them from early pornography? How am I going to protect them from other children, from any of these other things? And what you said just really struck me. Mm. I would love for you to talk a little bit about the the TEDx and everyone who's listening is going to watch it because you will forever be changed. I want to talk about what you talked about during that and this concept of sexual childhood neglect, which mm -hmm. I had never heard of. Yeah. So... um, 
you know, there's the ACEs study, which is adverse childhood uh, experiences. And so there's 10 of them. And you can hear about this in the TED Talk, but essentially sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse, and then physical and emotional neglect. And then some other ones that have to do with imprisonment and drugs and a bunch of other important things. But as I've done my training as a therapist and as I've worked with people, my own experience was my parents never talked to me about sexual development, uh, proper terms for my body parts, private parts specifically, consent, or just sexual development and body safety in general. And so I never had those conversations and neither did any of the people around me. And so um, when those things happen, normal sexual developmental things, kids playing, kids growing into puberty, you know, things happen with cousins and with neighbors and with people that, you know, now I look back on and realize were extremely traumatic, shaped the way I thought about myself, my body and other people. And that was always very private. And I never told anybody that until I was about 25 until I met my wife. And she was like, oh, me, I had similar things happen. And so did so-and-so. And then as I was working with clients, I was seeing many of them tell me the same stories. Um, you know, I had a 73-year-old woman that told me her sex, her dad, you know, sexually abused her. And uh, I'm the first person she's telling and she's 73, you know, and it's like, that that's wild. You know, that's, that's a, uh, it's a long time to hold a secret and hold something that's private. And, and so, you know, there's many people in the trafficking industry that, that came out and that I worked with that would tell me, you know, Oh, this happened, this happened, but I never knew my parents never told me, they never explained that to me. And, and it's not to blame parents, you know, many parents today listen to this. Maybe they haven't, maybe you felt a little shame or anxiety whenever you heard it, like, Oh man, I'm not having these conversations. Meaning the conversations with, uh, their kids, my daughter yeah. about, this isn't, you know, it's not a made up name. That's your vagina and nobody else can touch it and no one else can see it. Right. Where, where do we start? Where, what is the age that, what are these age appropriate ways yeah. to, and what, it, and how do you define sexual neglect? Yeah. So sexual neglect to me is uh, a kid growing up from birth to adulthood without healthy and age appropriate conversations about body safety, sexual development in general, proper terms for private parts and consent. You know, that, that's what I'm defining. So on that ACE study, what's not there, there's sexual abuse and sexual neglect or sexual trauma, and but there's not sexual neglect. And and when people hear sexual neglect as adults, sometimes they think, you know, like in marriage, like I'm not getting enough sex. My husband's neglecting me or my wife's neglecting me. I mean, the opposite. I mean, for children, it's not educating them on appropriateness, not educating them on normal developmental things like erections or menstruation or masturbation. Um, these are things that every human being experiences. But when a child experiences them and they don't know they're going to happen, then fear and shame and surprise is what they they get. And the way that that affects their neurology and their arousal template and, and what they like and don't like and what they think about themselves and other people is extremely toxic. And then they go on not to talk about it. And are they, if an individual suffers childhood sexual neglect and these age-appropriate conversations don't happen and they internalize these feelings of shame, are they more likely to become promiscuous, to make really poor sexual decisions? Do we know if there's some downstream effect? Yeah, I would say with all the other uh, research on sexuality that we would, kn we would know, uh, I don't think there's been enough research done on this topic. You know, um, when I go to places and speak... Um, you know, I'll get to this this subject and I'll say, hey, OK, I want you to be brave. Right. I want you to raise your hand. I did it at the TED Talk. Raise your hand if, you know, your parents talk to you about masturbation and everywhere I've gone, you know, there, there could be 3000 people or 5000 people or 400. I've never had any more than like three or four people raise their hand. Now, you could argue, well, they're just embarrassed and they don't want to raise their hand. Probably. But it's consistent. 
you know, it's over 400 times that I've done that. And, and in my personal life and in my clinical life. And, and then when I talk to other therapists and uh, we were talking about this before, but just this morning I was eating breakfast and my waiter came up and he was asking me what I do and you know, what's, what are you doing today? And I told him I was coming on your podcast. And so if you're listening, man, Hey, and, uh, <laughs> you better be listening. That's right. And so, uh, he was like, well, what are you working on? I said, well, my book cover, I'm writing a book and it's coming out. And he asked me the title and I told him. And, and what's the title? A Building Better Bridges, a guidebook to having difficult conversations that can save our kids. Um, and so I told him and he was like, man, I was sexually abused when I was a kid. And my wife was in a trafficking situation and we met and got married because of our trauma. And we've been working that out. And and it just hit me like it shows the statistical. It's not rare. Right. If, if my waiter, just by mentioning it, is like, hey, me too. And everywhere that I go and have these conversations, um, and that's been the, the feedback that I've had, right, is that when I start to have this conversation with anybody, I'll be at coffee with a pastor and I'll say, here's what sexual neglect is. And they're like, wait, that happened to me when I was eight. I didn't know that was trauma. Like, I just thought everybody went through that or I didn't even remember that happened. And that's just happened time and time again. And so that's what kind of formed trying to figure out the definition. Um and I describe it, you know, as not teaching your kids to cross the street. You know, when you when you neglect someone, it's not intentional, right? They're not trying to, we're not trying to neglect our kids. But when we we don't teach our kids, hold my hand, look both ways, stay on the sidewalk, watch out for cars, what's going to happen? They're going to get hit by, hit by cars when they walk out and they have no expectations. And so it's the same way in our homes when it comes to pri private parts, screens, technology, you know, social media, who can touch you, who can't, what is that private part called? Um, when we do not discuss those things, when we don't have the conversation, then we don't build a bridge between us and our child that can hold those heavy things. And so that's the concept of the book is these conversations over time from young to old kids build bridges that once you're going to have a, let's say you're going to have the sex talk at 11 or 12. Well, if you haven't had any conversations about sexuality or private parts or body parts at all, and then you go, Hey, I'm going to tell you about where the birds and the bees come from. Then the kid freaks out or they feel weird or they feel uncomfortable. It's because you haven't built a bridge between you and your child that's strong enough to handle it. Mm -hmm. And then at 15, you want to talk to them about sex with their girlfriend or, you know, protection or masturbation. Well, you've missed it by like four years. Yeah. Developmentally, they've already been experiencing that since 12, 13. And now you're they're two or three years in and you're wanting to, as a parent, go in and have this awkward kind of conversation. And they're like, I don't want to have this. So the idea is that these parents are saying, well, these are hard and difficult conversations. Like, well, they are if you don't scaffold along the way. Yeah. And when you talk about, um, you know, it's interesting you mentioned that about your waiter and you gave me some numbers earlier. You said 92 percent. Was it um, of, is it, is that many people? 92% of sexual abuse happens by someone you know. 92% of sexual abuse happens by someone you know. And then you had also said that one out of three girls will experience sexual trauma mm -hmm. and one out of four, five boys will experience sexual trauma. And I know that you believe that these numbers are totally underreported. Yeah. I mean, I think. You know, that's not my numbers. That's the statistical yep. numbers from, you know, all the research. Um, some say one in 11 boys, some say one in five. You know, there's a there's a bunch of different variables. But if you think about it, if you have 100 people in the room, you know, what one in three girls means, you know. It, it's insane. It's it insane. is insane. And that's not that's not even count. That's sexual abuse. You know, that's not counting just if a child was at a sleepover at eight 
and someone touched their private part or a sibling, you know, rubbed their private part while sleeping. Those things are very, very common. And as well. how do we define those? That would not be... I would call it sexual trauma. Okay. And the reason I call it trauma is because if the if the child has no clue what's happening and what's going on and they get an erection or they get um, turned on in some way, mm-hmm. then they feel shame and they feel excited and they feel confused. And then they go on to, you know, act those things out, play those things out sometimes with other children. So let's say a, you know, people are giving their kids phones by, at 10, 10 years old now. And let's say they have, um, I think it's somewhere 80, 83% of parents have no rules for devices. Mm. So let's say you have a kid with 83% of parents have no rules for devices, meaning they can look at whatever they want or there's no defined screen time, all that stuff. Right. So they, you know, they don't have an app on their phone that blocks any, any pornography. They don't have a screen time. They don't, you know, they don't monitor. They don't sit and watch it when they watch YouTube, none of those things. And so um, if that's going on and let's say an eight or nine year old is on your phone and they're in their room and they're playing YouTube kids or whatever, and YouTube suggests another link and they click the link and there's pornography, well, they watch it for a few minutes. It's, you know, it's not that these kids are going and looking for it. It's that they get exposed to it. Well, then they're curious. So then they go back to it and they go back to it. Well, then that kid goes to a sleepover at 11 or 12 or 10 and and they play a game and they play what they've seen and they get someone to touch them or they touch ask them to touch them well the kid who has never seen anything now is is violated and now exposed to it through this other child that child leaves and maybe they don't nobody ever finds out now this child is at a sleepover with another cousin and and on and on the the problem goes and and I would say our listeners the thing that's common for me is you know I'm nerve I get nervous talking about this because uh, you know, I'm very uh, mindful about how people feel and how triggering things can be for people. And people listening to this right now, I mean, you know, can be like replaying some of the things that happened to them. And I hate that. Um, and at the same time, if we don't talk about it, then we're never going to do anything about it. And the the confidence that I've gotten over the last four years is I know the people listening to this are thinking of things that happened that are in the same vein, right? That they're like, oh my, that did happen, you know, and I kind of pushed it over. My parents yelled at me or I got in trouble or they blamed me for it. When in reality, you should have never been put in that position in the first place. Mm. That puts a lot of responsibility on the parent. So parents listening, parents, aunts, uncles, anybody listening is your opportunity and responsibility to step in. How do we create more resilient children? Now, you have the penis rules in your house. I'm assuming we should probably have those in ours. You've developed tools and ways of having these conversations. And again, you know, I was thinking about it because I watched this TEDx talk and I called Shane, my husband, immediately after. I said, Shane, there's no more babysitters in the bathroom Mm -hmm. with Aries, our daughter, who is, you know, she's turning four. And we also have to think about my son, who's two and a half, what, when do we start teaching them? When is too early? When is age appropriate? What are some rules and things that we can do right now? And anyone that has little children, what can they do to make sure that their children, they're, they're protected and resilient? Yeah, absolutely. I think age appropriate is the most important thing about the whole conversation because people freak out, right? Um, we talked about right now, popularity in the news is the drag queen situation and people having drag queens come and read at a library to little children and all those sorts of things. And and for me, um, 
I'm fine with adults doing whatever adults want to do, right? I don't care what religion you are, what sexual orientation you have. Like, I want you to feel loved and feel safe. And if you if you're in contact with me, I'm going to try to make you feel that way. I'll go to dinner with you. I'll love on you. What I'm concerned about is the the hypersexualization of children and exposing them to things that they're before puberty, before they're even ready, during puberty while their hormones are racing everywhere, and then after puberty when they have they've been neglected and they have no context for their bodies or anything else. And so age appropriate is important because you're not going to talk to your three year old about masturbation. That's not the conversation. What you might talk to your three year old about is, hey, you know, you're you're touching your like my son, for example, I give the example in the book, but my son, you know, he's three, three and a half, four, and he's in the bathtub and he's swimming back and forth on the porcelain tub and he stands up and he's, you know, ah, daddy, my penis hurts. And, you know, he's got an erection. And I said, yeah, buddy. I was like, what were you doing? You know? And he's like, I was rubbing my penis on the bathtub. I'm like, well, if you rub your penis, it's going to be filled with blood and it's going to hurt. And I was like, so your penis is for teeting in the potty. You know, don't do that if you don't want it to hurt, you know? And that was a simple conversation. But that those conversations have happened multiple times. You know, he's laying in the bed next to me and he's messing with his penis or his testicles. And he's and I'm like, hey, buddy, what are you doing? He's like rubbing my penis. And I'm like, OK, I was like, that's no problem. Like, what what's going on? And he's like, well, it feels good. It, you know, I'm like, I understand. Let's put our hands up on the covers. You know, your penis is for TTN. Let's leave it alone for right now. And he's like, OK. It's just simple conversation. I'm not shaming him. I'm not making him feel bad about it. I'm not saying that touching your penis is right or wrong. But as an early kid, I want him to know. I'm really comfortable with talking to you about this. If you have questions about it, you can talk to daddy. It's not a big deal. It's just your body and it's good and God made it good. And and then as he gets older, it's there's a bridge there where he's like, okay, I come to dad and say, hey, why does this happen? Or what are these things that are underneath my penis? And why are they getting bigger? And why, like, we get so uncomfortable with talking about these things as adults because we've sexualized everything. But a kid before puberty is not thinking erotically. You know, when a when, kid before puberty is not thinking erotically. No, they're not thinking about you know neurologically. They're not thinking about having sex with another person, right? So when they hear the word penis, it's not a sexual or erotic term to them. It's just a body part. You know, they're they know there's something different about it, and that it's private. But they're they don't have the developmental stage to to understand you know sexuality at five when it comes to eroticism and sex with somebody else. And what are the rules that you put into place in your house? What are these penis rules? I know that they're, what exactly are they? And, and what age should we have that penis or vagina rules? Well, we start the, you know, as soon as we talk about the word penis, which is as soon as they start asking us, we, we started using it before, like even in diapers and even when they were toddlers, like that's your penis, you know, this is your anus, this is your body parts, you know, and if it was a daughter, I'd say this is your vagina and this is what this is and why it is. And so we just had those conversations normally. So it was never weird. You know, they're not running around the the church halls, jumping up the pews, yelling penis. But if they did. My kids are. Right. Now. They are now, you know, and at, at six and seven, they say penis all the time at the house, right? They're just constantly farting and penis and butt and everything else. Um, that's normal. But again, I want to go back. I want people to understand that we have a history of sexual stuff in our lives, erotic stuff. So. When we say the word penis, we think of what we've done with our penis. We think of the sexual things, the pornography, the exposure, the trauma that we've had, and it makes us uncomfortable. When a kid hears the word penis, they think of it as like arm or leg, you know? And so we have, as a culture, removed using these terms and saying tallywhacker, nunu, cookie, wee-wee. And what that actually does, research shows, is that it it makes it taboo. It makes it this other thing. And then 
when a person says, hey, let me touch your cookie or let me do this, or a child tries to describe that someone's touched them inappropriately and they don't have the proper terms, then we miss it sometimes. And when, and, and in order to avoid that, uh, I think, how, how many rules are there? There are like five rules, right? Yeah. So we just, I know you want to get to those rules. So the rules are things like, uh, so we have a sheet that we print out. You can find it on our podcast. And and uh, we'll, it was just so helpful yeah. because that's why I want the listener to know. I just, Absolutely. It'll be in the book. So it's things like, no one touches my private parts but me. We don't keep secrets. Um, so I explained to my kids the difference between secrets and surprises. So they know we can, we, at our house, like mommy and daddy don't even use the word. So we, I never say this is a secret for mommy, even if it's about cookies, you know, like we don't use any of those terms. So you say this is a surprise. This is a surprise. Yeah. We're going to, we're not going to tell mommy because we're going to, she's going to find out and we're going to surprise her with it. But I don't, I don't say, Hey, you know, we're going to watch a movie. Don't tell mom it's a secret. Right. And so what happens is, is that when a kid knows that the word secret is a no, no, and it's a red flag, if someone else says, Hey, don't tell your mom this, it's a secret. Boom. There's a neurological pathway that's been built in their brain and a family value that tells them, wait a second, this is dangerous. This is different. This is weird. And if they're coming from a safe family, then they don't want to do something that's weird. It's kids that come from broken homes or unsafe homes or abuse. They look for connection in other things. But when a kid has connection, they're not looking for deep connection. They're, they're, they're going, that's not connection. That's, that's different than what I feel safe with. So um, nobody, nobody will wash me except for my parents. Um, what happens when they go to daycare or school? How does that play out? Yeah, it's an interesting thing. I mean, I think it's a conversation that parents should have with their daycare workers and with their babysitters. You know, I think we have to be more mindful and really. So here's the deal. If you're a person um, who has... Uh, sexually abuse someone as an adult or a teen, and you plan on doing that sort of thing, the number one reason that you wouldn't do it is because you don't want to get caught. So if you go into your babysitter's room or office or wherever, and, or you go into the daycare and you have a, a list, this, these rules, and you bring it to them and say, we're aware that these things happen. We're not saying you're going to do it, but we want you to know we've talked to our kids about these things. They know their private parts. They know who can touch them, when and where that is, and they know who to tell. They know if they see something inappropriate on your phone or on a screen that they're going to come and tell me. We've we've worked on that. That person, even if they're thinking about sexually abusing your child, is going to pick someone else. Does that make sense? Totally. I hate to be that way because it sounds so hard. You have but to it's have like, open, transparent conversations. There, there, there's enough victims for perpetrators to find. I would think that potentially uh, daycare, if someone had that kind of urgent behavior... Uh, it would be a perfect place, mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately. Yeah, and the and the minimizing it is just talking about it, right? Just having the conversation. That that babysitter who comes over to your home, and even if they have a plan, or maybe they don't have a plan, and maybe they're triggered in their head and they think to do something. If you've already given them the list, they're going to go, not this house, right? I'm not doing it here. And that's what we have to do. We have to show that our kids are not prey, and that we are not victims, and that we we know and we're empowered to protect our children. Um, but we can't do that if we don't deal with our own stuff. If we as adults don't stop avoiding our own trauma and our own issues and our own shame and um, and understand why these things happen, where they're coming from and what to do about them. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's so important. Um, I try to lay that on the book. You know, I go through, you know, zero to four. I think it's five to seven, seven to 12, 12 to 18. And, and it's a general, right? 
rule of thumb. It's not for every kid, um, but here are the conversations you should be having. Here's how to have them. I give examples, uh, clinical examples, personal examples, um, and just really try to walk people through those things. And, you know, I, I, again, ever since your TED talk, your TEDx talk, I've really been rethinking what I allow my children to do. And I'm going to give you an example because if I'm experiencing this, I'm assuming that other, that the other listeners are, and the other parents are uh, experiencing this. So my daughter is very warm and loving and loves to run up and hug people. Mm-hmm. It could be a man, it could be a woman, even people she doesn't know. And initially, which I, I want to have this conversation with you, is I told her, this isn't this isn't a friend. I don't mean to be rude to the other person, but you're just running up and, and hugging them. And we have to know somebody before we're doing that, you know, because she's tiny, so it's right in their crotch and and yes and is that appropriate or am i creating trauma and and bringing in a early i don't know fear or shame when i say she doesn't really care what i say but um am i doing that wrong no i think it's important to set those boundaries with our kids you know it's that's the consent part the other person needs consent too right and so it's great to teach them like you ask you know, and and not with friends, not with people you know, but with strangers. But if ninety-two percent of sexual abuse is someone you know, shouldn't there be uh, a red flag there? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Because again, we don't know the babysitters, we don't know the uncles, we don't know the kids down the street, we don't really know them. And so I, I think that we have to teach our kids to be aware of when things are weird. And again, they're not gonna be perfect, they're kids, and we don't want to make them feel afraid. And and that's the biggest thing I talk about in the book is I don't want parents to freak out about this stuff. The solutions are very simple. You know, the conversations are very easy. They're just very uncomfortable. And they're uncomfortable because of our own trauma and our own experiences. And so if we can have these conversations openly and make them make sense, then when we have them with our kids, we can be authentic. It gets weird when we act weird about it with our kids. But when we're just like, hey, listen, that's that's not what we're going to do. Do you see mommy running up and just hugging random people at the store? Hugs are great. We should hug all the people we love. That's a very good thing. But we need to be careful with people because they might not want to hug or they might be scared of hugs or you might surprise them. You can say all kinds of things with kids that are like fun and not serious, but it gets the point across to them. And I really like that. I'm going to employ that immediately and tell her that she should ask consent. Yeah. Do you think that's enough to protect her? No. I mean, that's the very beginning of the conversation. Um our kids are going to get exposed to something. They're going to see something online at some point. And the years that we have with them from zero to nine or 10, 11, that's building the bridges, right? That's that's continuing to pave this kind of neurology and this pathway and this, this automatic response to, hey, I need to be mindful about this. Hey, I need to pay attention to that. That's not what our family does. Here's our family values. And that's the biggest thing I'd say. Whatever religious background you have or non-religious background, whatever it is, it's our job as parents to teach our kids our values around sex and private parts and sexuality. It's not my job to tell anybody what they should be teaching their kids. Well, my job is to show that no one's teaching their kids and we got to teach them. Nobody is teaching their kids and we have to teach them. You know, like, and if people listen to this, right, same question. Did your parents talk to you about masturbation? Did your parents talk to you about menstruation? The amount of women that I've had conversations with who had their period at a swim party and didn't even know they were going to have one didn't have a tampon, didn't know how to use it. And some other mom came over to help them. And then that was it. It was never discussed again. So when you, not to be too graphic. No, do you think it's just oversight? 
No, that seems silly. But mean? could it just be oversight of a parent? Because for them, it's so normal. Of that course. This episode was brought to you by Inside Tracker. That's like inside your body. Listen, it is amazing to work out and eat healthy, but the reality is you do have to know what is going on inside your body, hence your blood work. People age at different speeds and do different things. One reason you must track is because if you care about health and longevity, you have to know where markers are. For example, your ApoB, which is a newly added biomarker from Inside Tracker, which helps you understand your risk for heart disease. InsideTracker.com is the place to go to get your blood work to see how you are doing with all the positive changes you are making with health and exercise and eating right. Prove it to yourself. Head on over to InsideTracker.com and get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. You'll get, again, 20% off. And just go to InsideTracker.com slash Dr. Lion. That's InsideTracker.com slash Dr. Lion and pick from anything in their store for 20% off. Special thank you to First Form for sponsoring this episode of the show. And listen, you are probably a very busy person and it's very difficult to take a bunch of supplements. That is why I love Microfactor. So Microfactor is a complete daily nutrition pack. It comes in 30 packs. So basically you'll get 30 different packs. You don't even have to think about it. It's easy. You can throw it in your bag and you will get antioxidants, a multivitamin, a probiotic, CoQ10, essential fatty acids, and a blend of fruits and vegetables. You cannot go wrong with building this into your daily routine. It is really part of foundational health. It gives your body the essential vitamins and minerals and nutrients that will have a positive impact on your health, your immune function, your heart, your brain, and the list just keeps going on and on. It is very difficult, if not nearly impossible, to get everything you need from foods nowadays. Unfortunately, that is true. Having a supplement or a pack of supplements really can help safeguard you because, again, it is about preventing uh, any kind of deficiencies, but also it is also about optimizing. So head on over to firstform.com. That's one S-T-P-H-O-R-M dot com slash Dr. Lion, you know. It's not always, like, that's what I said, neglect's not intentional. It's, oh, that's just what's going to happen and it'll happen, you know. But the important thing is to be right before the age-appropriate time. Right so not like 10 years before, right? Not like four years before. Um, but you look at your child and you understand their development and you see that maybe some hair's growing on their legs or maybe these things are starting to happen. And you say, okay, I'm going to have to start having this conversation. And like with my kids, like we've already had the erection conversation. He already knows why his penis gets hard, but we haven't had a masturbation conversation. He's eight and a half. So I know in the next couple of years, we're going to start having to have the sex conversation. How do, how do humans procreate? How do, where do babies come from? Where, where does all it all happen? 
because I want him to feel comfortable with it and know that's, in my opinion, how God wired us to create babies and create humans. And that's where he came from. And, you know, um, and then after that, I know I'm going to have to have the masturbation conversation because I don't want to have the masturbation conversation first when he doesn't understand the mechanics of what all of that's really intended for. Because if I have that masturbation conversation first, just because he's rubbing his penis, then I'm skipping all kinds of normal developmental stuff that's confusing to him. And that um, that brings up a really good point. There are age-appropriate physiological check marks that happen, and we shouldn't be exposing children before that. No. And if know, they get exposed to that, then obviously you have to speed the timeline up some. Well, let, let me give you an example, and I would love your input as to how to manage this. My daughter loves to watch nature shows and real life interaction. Yeah. And she really loved this show called The Tall Girls uh-huh. or Tall Girl. And I think the girl is 6'4". And, uh, you know, it's I realize in hindsight, it's totally not age appropriate. It's a high schooler who is then kissing another mm. boy. Now she's witnessed it. Yep. And she loves it, the, you know, loves the show. And I don't know how to... I mean, what do I do? How old is she? She's going to be four. Right. But she will talk about, oh, are you getting married? Of or course, yeah. Married. and Yeah, my boys call it a married kiss. You know, they're like, we, we want to give you a married kiss, mom. You know, that's normal developmental stuff. And that's what I don't want parents to do is freak out because their kid's being a normal kid. They're going to say funny stuff about their private parts. They're going to they're gonna say things, but they don't mean what you think they mean. Right. If they haven't been exposed to pornography, if they haven't been exposed to the same touch, you know, to play sexual touch with other children, if they haven't seen content that they, they don't they're not going to come up with it. They don't have a, a memory bank of this inappropriate stuff like we do as adults. And so I think we should limit that as much as possible. We were letting our kids watch Power Rangers. And I realized, like after a couple episodes, it's a bunch of teenagers dating and having conversations I'm like I'm done because. Even at school, they're talking about, you know, at seven, they were talking about having crushes and, you know, and people think that's cute. It's not. It's too young. And I don't think it's cute. I think it's hypersexualizing our kids for something that they're not developmentally ready for. And I think it sets them up to project and play out things that they're not ready for. And just like my kids think they're Transformers or thinks they're Pokemon cards or, you know, they're going to be a dog for a week because they saw something they like and thought it was funny. They're going to play out what they see when it comes to marriage and house and all this kind of stuff. So when we let them at 10 watch a show that's for teenagers, then we're fast forwarding their actual developmental experience in life. Now, if you have older siblings, like all that's going to happen, right? I'm not saying keep them in a bubble. Well, I mean, if you can, for certain things, there's going to be enough trauma and experience that they're going to have. That's the point. We didn't have the internet, you know... People always talk about nutrition and the paleolithic way of eating. Well, if you translate that over to interfacing with other humans, we did not have a ton of pornography. We did not have a ton of uh, internet or tall girl kissing or power rangers. Everything is – I know maybe the kids shouldn't be in a bubble, but potentially – I think a bubble from those things is appropriate. You know, they're going to see enough things in life in public. I mean, they're going to see people kiss and hold hands and different genders do different things. And you get to have conversations in just normal life. And for thousands of years, that's been the case. But only until the last 15 has that really been an option for our children. Like, think about it. If you're if you're a little girl and you want to learn about what little girls or women think about sex or th- women think about anything, 15, 16 years ago, you would have to walk over to a group of women and ask them. 
right? You would have to have a community where you go, there's 10 or so women drinking coffee or having tea. Hey, ladies, tell me about boys. Tell me about men. And they would tell you. Today, you can go on YouTube or TikTok and listen to a thousand different women tell you a thousand different versions of all of that unfiltered. So same thing with little boys. Is technology amazing? Yes, there's so much good information out there, but children cannot handle it. You know, they have no prefrontal cortex. They have no ability to uh, manage their emotions and their rational and logical logical thinking. Um, Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah. So children, you know, that's one of the major problems, I think, in parenting is that um, the word parenting didn't come into the English language until like 1958. 1958? Yes. What did they call it before? Uh, raising children, you know, like... Babysitting. It, right. I'm kidding. No, it's... I mean, it. you didn't have babysitters, right? People lived in like a rural community. They Their village raised them together. There wasn't really a psychological concept of these two people. Um, what's a male and a female do and how do they interact and how does that socially affect? Because we didn't have child psychology or any of those things yet. And so in the 50s and 60s and 70s, we started trying to figure that out. And we the technology came around where we had brain scans and we could study neurology and we could see how dopamine happens and affects. So we act like we're so like far in and we're so smart, but we're really, you know, what is that, 60, 70 years into figuring out like how a child actually develops. I mean, for goodness sakes, in the 40s and 50s, we cut into soldiers' brains because we, you know, thought that they had a demon or that their fluid was different after they came back from war instead of understanding they had post-traumatic stress disorder. And so it's the same thing with kids. And so around the 50s and 60s, we started looking at, you know, the kid's brain and how they're functioning. And so I think now as parents, you know, our parents would have said, well, there wasn't a book for this, right? We didn't, they didn't give me a book when they gave, you know, you came out. Now you have one. We have yeah. a lot, yeah. right? We have a lot of things that tell us like how kids are affected by different types of discipline or different types of behaviors or timeouts or time ins. And, um, and I think we should look at that and research that and, and really understand what they're developmentally capable of doing and what they're not. And then what is age appropriate and what's not. Without having that prefrontal cortex, that um, way of kind of having a logical and breaks on action, what kind of influence, number one, how much TV electronics should someone have? What is that? What are the implications of the life that we now live that we feel is normal? Yeah, I mean, I'm going to be probably, you know, people are going to call me crazy, but we do no screen time during the week. So they the only time they get screen time is on the weekends. Um, usually Saturday and Sunday, they can have somewhere between 30 to 45 minutes to an hour. We may do a movie, you know, we may do like Incredibles or something like that. And and we may do an hour and a half with that. Um, but that's usually a treat. Um, uh, what I see in my kids is that they're, they're sensory overloaded when they get too much screen time, when they start their day off with screen, they're more impulsive, they're more chaotic, they're more tired, they're more, um, you know, all of those things. And so we've just limited that. And our kids never ask for it. You know, they don't know. Our, my, my children never ask to touch my phone. You know, they never touch it. They never ask me to touch it because they just have never known that they could. We don't have iPads that they watch. Now, a parent might be thinking, like, how do I function in life in the world that we live in without all of that? It's going to be hard. Yeah. It's going to be hard. It is difficult. And parenting is difficult. But what we know is we're living in a time where we didn't have it 15 years ago. We didn't have it when we were kids and now we have it and we don't know what we're doing. So the other thing I do, which has been really sad and awesome in the last couple of years is I've been speaking a lot to teenagers and talking to them about, 
their phones and how they can self-regulate and take a break, right? Take a 30-day break. If you've never not had a phone or not had social media, you don't know what it's like to not have it. So I say, raise your hand if you have a phone, right? Everybody's hands go up, all the teenagers. I say, keep your hand up if you have TikTok or Instagram. All their hands stay up. I say, now, now parents, I want you to watch. Look around, okay? Now keep your hand up if your parent taught you how to use your phone or social media. All their hands go down. There might be five people in the room that have their hand up. And so that's the majority of our culture is that teenagers have social media. They have phones that they don't know how to use. They don't know dangers. They don't know red flags. They don't know how to appropriate communicate. They don't know how to have text chat and do that in a healthy way. I mean, they just literally changed the iPhone where now we can delete texts that we've sent, right? We can delete them because people are sending so many things that they regret. Like that's why the iPhone updated so where we can delete our text because we're like, oh, shouldn't have sent that picture, shouldn't have sent that text, shouldn't have sent that email because I did it in the moment and I need to get that back. I want them to unsee it, right? I don't want them to be able to see it. And so if we do that as adults, think about how many kids are sending and doing. I mean, the stats on children sending nude pictures is like, I think it's 37% of kids, and this is an old stat, but have sent a nude picture to another child. What age? Oh, anywhere from, you know, if they have a phone. So what do we, what are some of the tools in the book? What are we, what are we going to do? Obviously starts with parents, mm-hmm. um, but what are we going to do to change the course of what's happening? Do you think that there's going to be two divisions? One individuals that are just um, totally anti phone, anti social media, you know, um, Tim Kennedy, they have a, an amazing, did you see they have uh-huh. an amazing school where it really is about potentially how it used to be decades ago about how they're thinking and they're engaging and they're learning how to move. Where, where do you think from a personal perspective, where are we going to go and how are we going to interface this? I think that's what we're going to have to do is, is I think technology is great. I think children having technology, they don't know how to use is the most dangerous thing we've put into the culture. You know, this stuff with sexual neglect and the book and the trauma, you know, that is really almost a separate issue. Right. In my opinion, that's the precursor. That's what I'm talking about is that people are I love that people are talking about social media and cell phones. And we're all aware that those are problematic. Right. If any of us have social media and you're listening to this, you know that you don't like it. Right. You don't, you know, you don't like how it makes you feel. You know, you don't like the comparison game. You know, you don't like all of the things that go with it. But it's so stimulating with dopamine that, that you keep doing it because it's getting you these little highs. And, and there's a bunch of you know, research on that. What I'm saying is that. Before kids even get a phone, they've already been exposed to pornography. They've already been sexually abused. They've already been traumatized. And then they get a phone that no one's teaching them how to use, that no one's teaching them how to protect themselves from. And the stats on like private messaging and sexting and all these things in in this 10 to 13 to 14 year old age range is so high. Since 2010, this is Coddling of the American Mind is a great book. But since 2010, and we also saw it on... uh, the Netflix uh, show, um, gosh, I can't think of it off the top of my head, but uh, it's a documentary on technology. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, since 2010, there's been a 200% increase or so in teen self-harm or suicide. You know, so we have so many more kids cutting themselves, harming themselves, eating disorders, you know, chronic uh, self-destructive behavior since 2010 and that's about when social media came on the landscape for teenagers and we as adults can't even regulate ourselves no i can't regulate my phone and how are we on earth going to help regulate 
our children. Well, first, that's a great word. But regulate in, in, in general, like self-regulation is something we forget that we need to teach children. And I do all the time. I mean, I am not a perfect parent. You know, my kids are five and a half and eight and a half. And I find myself like wanting to lose my mind on them. And I have a fully functioning adult brain and they have a very tiny brain. This is the first time they've ever been five and nine. And yet I'm expecting them to, you know, not ever lose a fit, not ever cry, not ever be exhausted, not ever be hungry, not ever be frustrated. And in my moment, I'm like, just get it together sometimes, you know, like I'm just trying to get out the house to come do this podcast. Like, can you just let me leave? You know, like all the things that we as parents constantly battle. But if we understand um, who they are and how they're wired, then we can realize that like they're just little babies. They're just little bitty kids. And we're exposing them to all these things and leaving them to the wolves, essentially. And then we're putting a device in their hand and not teaching them how to use it. So my example in the book um, it, that I that I love is that I wish um, I wish that people treated a cell phone like a driver's license. Okay, so think about it this way, because people are like, well, do you just not give them a phone until 18? Well, of course not. You have to teach your kid how to use things. There are other ways. They don't need to have a phone. They can have a tracking device on them. You can find them. Absolutely. But, but the Gab phone, yeah, there's the Gab phone. Android just came out with a new um, a Bark phone, which is another great app. So there are phones that they can get where you can text, you can call, and you can have certain music, but you can't get on the internet. You can't download apps. You can't do social media. Um, so look into those. But what I was going to say was the driver's license idea is, is kind of, in my opinion, pretty revolutionary. And so remember when you were 11 or 12, some of us, right? Our parents let us sit in their laps. Maybe they let us drive down a dirt road or in a parking lot. And we got to kind of feel what it was like to be an adult and behind the wheel. Right. Some of us have hor- I have horrible memories of that. My dad getting super bad and slamming the door and getting out because I couldn't figure out the stick shift. But I remember, you know, figuring it out on my own and kind of driving around the backyard in this Zuzu pickup. Um, the cell phone could be the same way, like 11 or 12. Maybe you let them start every once in a while looking something up on your phone. Maybe start working with an iPad. Maybe start trying to figure that out. But you're sitting right beside them, watching them and showing them what to do. Right. Hopefully not getting up and throwing the iPad. But you're like, you know, here's what to do. And then at 13 or 14, we get our learner's permit. We go take a class and a course and we test and make sure like we're doing what we're supposed to be doing and we're not going to get out there and hurt somebody. But then we're driving the car and our parents sitting right beside us to make sure we know the rules of the road, that we know what to look out for. We know the red flags. We know what to protect ourselves from. And for them as as our guides to be like, okay, I trust you a little more. I see how you're working. I see how healthy you're. We're talking about this stuff. Maybe I'll let you drive up to the store. I'll let you go on a, you know, maybe get on the interstate now and we'll build up to that. And then at 16, you take a driver's ed course, right? And you're in there with a bunch of other teenagers learning about the rules of the roads, the dangers. And then you take driver's ed and you, you actually take a test where you drive. And I'll never forget, you know, you're looking around and you're like, okay, how do I put my seatbelt on and turn the steering wheel and turn the air? You, you kind of freak out in those driver's ed tests because yeah. you're overwhelmed. Um, and you want to see that for social media. I want, to see, that, I want to see that for All phones in general and social media. Like if you, if you're going to give your kid a phone, are you not going to teach them how to use it? Right. And if you think they're just going to be okay, what we've forgotten is that these apps and these, um, these companies are sending your children things. They're sending text messages. They're sending bots or sending direct messages They're, I mean, every time it's, you know, Christmas or Valentine's Day, the amount of lingerie ads I get in my stories that I'm not looking for, right? But they're right there. 
right? Some girl in a long, in a thong walking across the thing. And I was looking at, you know, jujitsu videos, right. you know, right before. And so if our kids are, if I know I'm getting that, then our kids are going to get that. Are they going to click on it? Are they going to go down the rabbit hole? Right. And so we have to scaffold that and teach them. And if we teach them resiliency, we build resiliency around technology and we prepare for what they're going to see in person and online, then they're going to have the resiliency to go, yeah, we don't do that. Oh, I love that. You know, yeah, that's that's provocative and I kind of like it. And even if they do, because they're going to mess up, you know what they're going to do? They're going to come you. in and they're going to go, hey, dad, that that's all one of those ads. And it made me feel really weird. Like you told me it was. And I'm going to go, dude, that's totally OK. Women are beautiful. Men are beautiful. God created them in this way and they're awesome. But if you go down that ra- that that road, this is what's going to happen with your body. This is what's going to happen. These are the risks around addiction with these things. Mm. And, you know, in my opinion, like we should be not just throwing ourselves into all those things and creating a um, Frankenstein monster of memory and experiences that then we bring into marriage. Yeah. I, these are all just, it's so important because the generations that are going to come from our children are just going to perpetuate forward. So if we can really manage ourselves, self-regulate ourselves, and mm-hmm. then really put these guardrails up, I think it's tremendous. What are absolute no's or moderate no's? Yeah, I have a hard time with absolutes um, because I know that everybody's got tough situations. There's single parents out there. There are parents with sensory issues. Um, there are kids who have a hard time listening. And then there's kids where like, there's two options, right? There's prevention and recovery. Let's talk about that. So some people listening to this right now, they're like, Clint, I'm, I have a 16-year-old. I have a 17-year-old. I have a 22-year-old. I have a 14-year-old. I have done none of the things you're saying. And my, my comment to you is, it's okay. You know, we all make mistakes. You didn't know. You didn't mean to do this. Nobody, nobody took the phone and was like, hey, you know what? Let's give it to 100 people and let's see how that goes. Right. It's the first thing in society that's technological that we just threw into society. And it's totally unregulated. Yeah. And one night we had a razor phone if we were really cool. And the next night we had the iPhone one and no one tested it out. Now we're actually at the Congress congressional hearing. We had some people coming out and showing like they did know how it was affecting anxiety. They did know some of these things and yet they put it out anyway. And so I think that we have to um, to get better at being aware as parents, making our kids aware. And again, just teaching them these, these regular things because they are our future. I, I, yes. Talk to me about sleepovers. Okay. Talk to me about sleepovers, camp. Mm-hmm. Uh, am I missing anything? No, There's a lot. Okay. Uh, I, I, want I mean, anytime your kid's away from you um, and they're not supervised by you and they're supervised somebody you don't know, I'd say the biggest thing is for you just to go have a conversation with those people and tell them your rules, tell them your culture. I think that I think research shows that that'll reduce sexual abuse by like 82, 83%, something like that, you know, and statistics are statistics. So it's, you know, not a hundred percent accurate. But my point is, is that if we know that, if we know that people who want to abuse our children are also neglected, abused people, They've also experienced these things and they want to get away with it. They want to do it privately. They're, they're not out trying to get caught. Then the solution, right? The bridge is the conversation. So if you go to a camp and you say, hey, you know, I'm Dr. Lyons. I, I, uh, this is my daughter. This is my son. We have these rules at our house. We've talked about these things. I want you to know that I know and I'm going to be asking them after camp if these things happened. They know their private parts. They know who can touch them. They know they should not be looking at devices. 
they're going to come home and tell me what happens. You, the likelihood of that anybody in that situation trying to harm your child is so, so small. They're psychopaths, right? We can't. What do we, what do, we do about the, the little children playing with each other or? Supervise. Okay. Oh, okay. That's really important. Let's go through so yeah, yeah. a whole list in the book. There's uh, no closed doors, uh-huh. supervision. Yep. Uh, Checking in. Okay. I want to hear all those. Yeah. So, I mean, like, think about it. If you got kids, like when kids come over to my house, the first thing we go is, hey, everybody come here. No, no getting under blankets, right? No shutting doors. I'm going to be coming in and checking on you guys every 15, 20 minutes and making sure you're okay. You know, keep, keep your hands to yourself. Nobody looks at anybody's private parts or touches any private parts. Go have fun. Every time. And my kids don't think it's weird. The other day, Grady and you, they were going to go. So our neighbors, uh, shout out to Jin Ling and uh, Ling. We call him Ling. Um, they, uh, they came over to take our kids to their house. And it's very rare that we just let our kids go without us. Generally, because we want to hang out too, because we're super social. But so we trust them. They know the rules. We've had all these conversations. Their daughter knows the rules. So I'm like, sure, you can go. Well, they were going to get on bikes and ride over. And so I was like, I was like, Grady, come here. Because I was trying to get him to get his helmet on. I wasn't even going to say, I'd already said the other things. So he comes up and he's like, this is my eight and a half year old. He's like, I know, dad, don't be rough. Don't push anybody. Don't, nobody touches my private parts. Um, And he gave me some other benign rule. And, and I was like, yeah, bud. He's like, okay, see you later. And he just left. It wasn't weird. He lumped it all in the same kind of family rules. Amazing. It wasn't like, a, okay, nobody touched my private parts. I know you're going to make this weird thing about it. He's just like, this is what we do. This is our life. Normalize it. Yeah. So when they're in the bathtub, you know, <laughs> you know, I stopped. They're not taking baths together anymore. Because what age do they stop that? I would say you check your kid. You know, it's age appropriate based on your kid's exploratory kind of thought processes. If they're always grabbing and touching and trying to figure stuff out, it's time to time to stop. If they're fine and they just take baths and they don't say anything about it and they're not really paying attention, then you let them keep doing it. But you supervise them. You don't leave your kids in the bathtub unsupervised, mm-hmm. naked. You know, that's something that opens the door to risk that's unnecessary. And I get it. People are like, well, that's inconvenient. I'm trying to cook. I'm trying to do these things. I get it. And I'm not saying you have to be perfect with it. But do the do that, do the right thing, the healthy thing, seven or eight out of ten times. If you gotta do something, and we all mess up, right? We've all left our kids in the car and ran in and grabbed something or done something. What we're trying to do is lower the statistical likelihood of all of it, right? It's a risk assessment. It's not saying it's gonna be perfect. It's not saying things aren't gonna happen. It's saying, what way can we shift our culture and our family cultures to where that risk is extremely low? And so for our kids, once my youngest is trying to grab my oldest's penis and quit, well, quit poking him in the butt and messing with him, I'm like, okay, you guys are, one, you're splashing water everywhere. It drives me crazy. And two, like, I just don't want to have to be, put you in the position where you have to manage something when you're not being, you're not doing anything wrong, right? You're, you're just being curious and you're just trying to mess with your brother. And he freaks out when you do it because he's the older one and he knows the rules. So he's more of the like prude one. My younger one, he's sticking his penis out of his underwear. He's coming in and shaking and laughing. And I'm just constantly like, buddy, I'm writing books about this. Like, come on, dude. So it's, it's, you have to be lighthearted. And that's the thing. When people hear this information, they freeze up and they start panicking. It's like, your kids are kids. They're going to be crazy and silly. Don't freak out on them. It's what I'm talking about is what do we do as adults internally? How do we talk as adults with each other and our teachers and our schools? Not how do we talk to our kids? Like we do need to talk to our kids, but we're not getting on to them. We're not freaking out with them. We're not making sexuality and their bodies, these weird things. We're making that extremely normal and healthy with them while also creating adults who are extremely protective and aware. 
Does that make sense? Yes, yes. And basically what I'm hear- hearing you say is that there are age-appropriate conversations that must be had. 100%. There are absolute rules of private parts, of who is going into the bathroom, who is not. There are absolute rules mm-hmm. of not having secrets, having surprises, really functional, fundamental ways we can have the conversation. I'm also hearing you say very transparent and somewhat aggressive conversations with those that are caring for our children. Yes, I would say, I mean, we live in a culture, we all have so much trauma. You know, it's funny. I lo- I could talk about trauma all day because it's my favorite thing. I-, I never planned on talking about this or writing this book, right? Like I love talking about family trauma and family systems and marriage. And, and this just kind of has been, in my opinion, just kind of my given path that I have to do. Because you saw it and you saw I experienced nobody. it and nobody's saying anything about it. And all my friends and all my clients and everybody that in all five of our offices and on podcasts, every time I go talk, it's like this comes up, somebody brings it up. So it's like I'm vulnerable about the story. I talk about it and it people are like, oh, I want to tell you about this happened to me. And, and just like at the TED Talk, you know, had somebody come up and, you know, tell me, yes, I was abused. And they called their mom in the mid- middle of the TED Talk. Yeah. If that's what this conversation does for people, that people will open up and get help and not wait till they're 73, yes. then I don't care. I think it's very noble what you're doing and so important. So important that we're taking a break from our normal scheduled programming guys to have this conversation. One of the things that I've seen for individuals in my cyber so concierge practice, which you know, Those individuals that have had sexual trauma and wait to get over it have a very hard time Mm -hmm. living a life that is in optimal wellness. 100%. And there are, it's not to say, you know, I have have had many patients that have had sexual trauma and it seems as if it is very black and white. And I I don't mean that um, to be so extreme, but I... It's just the experience. I've been seeing patients since 2006, and those that deal with their trauma can talk about it. Mm -hmm. Do not have, in your book, you talk about the body, keep score. Mm -hmm. They move on from that score. They settle that score, and they move on. They can talk about it, and they heal. Those that don't, those are the ones that have chronic insomnia. Those are the ones that have chronic GI issues. Those are the ones that have significant hypothalamic issues where yep. they're not menstruating or can't get pregnant. You know, not to say that that's everybody. And, you know, and for the the men, those are the ones that really have sexual side effects and lower testosterone. Again, I'm not saying that that's just the only reason. Of course not. But, but there's a correlation. I have definitely seen over the years those that have unaddressed trauma, especially especially sexual trauma, struggle. Yeah, because think about it. Like you're, the thing about sexuality is it's, it is so, so important and such a normal part of who we are. We can't separate it out. And so when that gets violated, when, when, that, when something happens with another child or online or with another person, before you're even in puberty, you know, it shapes everything. It shapes arousal template, you know, in sex addiction. The what world. do you mean arousal? So template. arousal... It's one of the things that I feel like we need to talk about as a culture more. Um, an arousal template is like, what turns you on? I mean, we we all have these things that we like. We have different hair colors, different sizes, different sexual things that we like because they arouse us more than they arouse somebody else, right? This is not uncommon knowledge. We would all say in right. the culture. We, would, we, we can know, all agree <laughs> yeah. that. And so that's not good or bad. 
The question is, where does that come from scientifically? Right? We should be asking these questions. We should be learning about these. And so within the sex addiction world, International Institute of Trauma and Addiction Professionals, which is called ITAP, we learn about sexual arousal templates, meaning when something happens to you when you're a child and it's arousing, it starts to, to paint a pathway for you that you like that. And so in trauma, it's the same way. A lot of the human trafficking victims or sexual abuse victims, right, they replicate that trauma and sex later on. Could be pain, it could be pain compliance, it could be dominance, it could be all kinds of things. Um, it could be submission, it could be you know aggression. But a lot of times in therapy, um, if you trace that back, they have an early experience with trauma, sexual trauma or abuse that's paired with what they're liking as an adult. And so that neurology has been shaped to go, I feel a sense of pleasure or power empowerment around sexually acting out because I was taken advantage of here and I didn't have that. Does that make sense? Yes. And so there's a lot of things where people watch certain types of pornography because it turns them on in a way, it arouses them in a way that normal sexuality doesn't. And one of the problems with today is, you know, a lot of young men are having erectile dysfunction mm -hmm. in the droves because for the first time in history, for 10 years, they've been masturbating 10 times a day, you know, three times a day and watching porn all day long. And so their arousal template has seen so much aggression and so much um, hypersexuality that having sex with just one person who is you know, safe and good, it doesn't it doesn't do the same thing. Mm. So we're chasing pleasure. Right. We, we replace sexuality with how can I get the best orgasm and the most sex, not how can I be as connected as I need to be to this person and feel safe, which from a psychological perspective is is crazy making because as just as humans, we seek safety and connection. So to do something that is the opposite of safety, it, it's counter to how we actually function as humans optimally. It's interesting because we we see seek safety and connection, but because of the influence of the world, the rate at which the world is changing, I do fear for the way humans are designed. We may be designed one way and evolved to be another, but the implications and the evolution of what is going to be happening and what is happening, we have no idea. No, and we're not even studying it. And we're not even prepared to deal with these ramifications. Yeah, there's a... Uh, uh evolutionary psychologist, I can't think of the book, but it, uh, they're talking about, they, they basically describe it as a bridge, right? So you have a, you're standing on a, um, on a pier and there's a, 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 a floaty out in the water, right? And if you, this generation jumps on the floaty, it pushes the floaty out a little bit. The next generation jumps on the floaty, it pushes the floaty out. Well, if you push it too far, this generation can't jump. And I feel like that's what we've done with technology is that it's good, but because we went in one night from one version of technology to the next, and then we just mass produced it. We're only about 15 to 17 years into it, totally. And then we're only about 12 years into kids having it. And that's it. 2010, Instagram came out. It's 13 years. We're, we act like we've been doing this for 100. But we're now, right now, just seeing the consequences of that change in our culture. Um, and unfortunately... I hope that the phone and social media is like cigarettes. You know, we look up and we go, can you believe we used to I, smoke on yeah. planes? Yeah. Like, that's crazy. I know. Like, do you, can you believe people just used to sit next to each other and smoke in a restaurant while everybody else is trying to eat? And, and literally the Surgeon General warnings, like, it's going to kill you. Like, and people are like, 
I don't care. It's on the label. It's telling you it's going to kill you. I hope that we wake up very soon and look at social media with kids and phones for kids, especially, and maybe even adults, and go, I can't believe we used to do that. Can you believe there was a decade where we just gave kids phones and let them have social media? And we, the problem is all of the traumatized, hypersexualized, or dead children in between now and then. Mm-hmm. So it's and heartbreaking. I, but that is the, that's the statistics, right? That's not Clint's opinion. That's what's happening. And we're all aware of it, right? As I say this, the, the, the thing about the book that I love is I'm not necessarily saying anything new. I'm bringing awareness to things that we're all aware of, but we don't know what to do. And we have no clue how to talk about it. And we'll talk about it in, in quiet, private conversations, maybe with our spouse or a friend. But as a culture, it's, it's happening around us. We've all experienced it. We're all walking and living in it. But it's also swept underneath the rug that, you know, our next generation of children are in trouble. Well, with you being the voice of this, I, I think that there's hope. Thank you. I think that there's hope. I know that there's hope. If we can get other individuals on board and listening, we cannot save all our children. Mm-hmm. The reality is, is we can't, but we can do our absolute best. Yes, absolutely. I think there's a lot of hope. I think, like I said, I want people to feel like the solutions are very simple. They're not complicated. The bridge that you're building is you love your kid. You want to talk to them. You want to know them. Your kid is wired uniquely uh, for who they are. And so that's what's, you know, it's not a one size fits all. It's, it's a general conversation and then you have to gear it to who your kid is. Your kid might need you to be throwing a baseball with them and having this conversation. Your kid might need to be sitting face to face, drinking coffee in the morning and having this conversation. Your kid might need you to write it down or record it. A lot of kids with autism or on the spectrum or that have neurodiversity, you know, they, they need different types of communication because they get too overwhelmed. We'll do that for them. The information's no different. It's just how they receive the information. And so we, the book, I hope, will give a, a good general guide, wake some people up to the problem. But I hope that we can have way more conversations with each other as adults. Um, and I hope people can come out of the woodworks with other solutions and other things that can help me, you know, have this conversation go bigger and bigger and more and more. And I really think that we can look up in 10 or 15 years and have a group of parents and kids who know how to protect themselves, who know how to keep their kids safe online and in person, and that that next generation that impacts human trafficking, pornography, you know, all the things that are the the worst things that are affecting human beings that are dehumanizing so many people, so many women, so many children, so many men, that if this next generation can have a healthy view of themselves and sexuality, and we can have not exposed them to all of these things, that they'll be the ones who are resilient enough to go, hey, let's make an impact on these things. This all comes from here. I mean, human trafficking is is just a consequence of all of this stuff. It's created an appetite yes. for something that should supply not exist. Demand. Yeah, if you if you if there was no supply, right, there wouldn't be a demand. That's one of the things I speak about at the human trafficking conferences is um what what creates a trafficker or a pimp? You know, what creates a guy who would buy a prostitute? And um, we wrote what's called a John school. So with our DA in our city, guys that get picked up for first or second time offenses for prostitution, they come and they learn about their own trauma and their own neglect and their own exposure. And what I try to do is say, I tell them every beginning, I say, listen, guys, I truly believe if you would know what I'm about to tell you before you did it, you wouldn't have done it. 
because every one of them, they some of them drive Mercedes, some of them drive beat up pickup trucks. It's it's a cross socioeconomic problem. And what they think is something different than what's true. And I've had one guy said, uh, he said, man, this is the first thing I've ever heard that's ever really helped me understand me and how these women feel. He said, everything else has felt like Band-Aids on bullet holes. And I said, man, I'm glad that it's helpful. And he ended up going to therapy at my practice and getting some help. Um, But it's the shame. What I really want to alleviate for people is shame. Shame is different than guilt. Guilt is I what I did is bad and I don't like how I'm being. Shame is I'm bad and I have no worth. And sexual trauma and abuse and, and family trauma and so much more, there's so many people walking around in deep shame that I'm not good, I'm not worthy, I'm not lovable, I'm not safe. And, and that's just not true. You know, I believe God made those people to be loved and to be valued and to be safe regardless of external factors. Regardless of if they screwed up and let their kid have a phone or if they've seen porn or if they've been abused or even if they've abused somebody else, they have intrinsic worth and value and they're worthy of reconciliation and redemption and healing. But we as a society have to do it as a society. And we've moved into an individualized, these people are bad and I would never do that. And how could they? And when we ask how could they, maybe we should figure it out. Maybe we should go, well, let's actually pause and, and go, how did this happen? And that's the beauty, in my opinion, of, of therapy and working with people in relationships is you get to hear stories. And I've never had a person who I've gotten to know and sat on the couch with or sat over coffee with and heard their story and then looked at their behavior and been like, well, that doesn't make any sense. Right? I'm like, of course you did that. Of course you're looking at porn. Of course you hit your wife. Of course you, you know, abuse someone. Of course you cheated on your taxes. Of course you do these things. Look what you went through. You went through some things that as a child you never should have experienced ever in your life. You weren't protected. You weren't educated. You weren't equipped. What were you supposed to do? That doesn't mean you don't take responsibility as an adult and make some changes. But what it does is, is this inner child inside of us who feels so much shame, it lets them go, you know what, I have, I have power inside of me and I can do something different. I can make a change as an adult and I got to stop blaming my childhood self and blaming myself for all these things. And I got to take responsibility moving forward. And I think that's how we get out of the victim mindset. You know, we have to acknowledge that maybe we were a victim at one time, but we're not going to stay a victim. We're going to move out of that and we're going to use our story for other people's good. Davis, thank you so, thank you so, so much. This conversation is critical. I'm going to encourage everyone at the beginning when I do your intro that they must listen and must listen to the whole thing. You're doing incredible work. I'm so grateful that you spent this time with me. I will put the book is called Building Better Bridges. Yeah, we will. Uh, connected. It's a Building Better Bridges, a guide to a guidebook to having difficult conversations yes. that can save our kids. Oh, and you do have a practice. Yep. Clint Davis Counseling um, and Integrative Wellness. We have uh, five locations in Louisiana. We have uh, we're on Instagram, Clint Davis Counseling, uh, Facebook. So again, uh, follow us, share our stuff. I have a podcast called Asking Why with Clint Davis, and we get into all these discussions. I have different guests on and we kind of get into the nitty gritty of, of why are these things happening, whether it's trafficking or parenting or how do I parent little boys and little girls and teenagers and um all kinds of things. So I would love for you guys to support that and follow us and um, help us, you know, just make the world better. Thank you so much for having me on. Of course. Always a pleasure to spend time with you. 
The Dr. Gabrielle Lyon podcast and YouTube are for general information purposes only and do not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. And no patient-doctor relationship is formed. The use of information on this podcast, YouTube, or materials linked from the podcast or YouTube is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professional for any such conditions. This is purely for entertainment and educational purposes only.